Welcome to the War in Ukraine Update from Kyiv Podcast. Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm pleased to be talking today with Darren Lim. Darren is a senior lecturer in politics and international relations at the Australian National University. Darren focuses in his work on geoeconomics as well as on international order and global governance, with a particular focus on the rise of China and Sino-US competition. As I've said a few times already on the podcast, I feel that when it comes to the conflict in Ukraine, China is the elephant in the room. How China decides to align themselves and the way in which the Ukraine conflict will impact China's foreign relations and economic policies is really going to shape the character of great power competition and international order in coming decades. So I'm very pleased to have an opportunity to discuss some of these issues with Darren today. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Darren. It's my pleasure, Jessica. It's great to be here. Firstly, some background. What have been China's key responses to the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine? It seems like a very simple question to answer, but it's not, because whenever you're trying to pin down Chinese foreign policy, you can't look at any one measure and say this has been the response, because first, Chinese policymaking is very opaque because of the nature of its system of governance. And the language they use when speaking, the officials use and politicians is very careful and precise, but usually also very vague. And so when I think about that response, I kind of bucket three categories of factors. The first is what they would say if you ask them directly. And if you did that, and as they have been asked, they will say that their position on the conflict is one of neutrality, that they're not taking sides. You know, they would compare their responses to the significant rhetorical and material support provided by the West to Ukraine. And they would say, we have done nothing like that. We've provided some small humanitarian assistance, only in the single digit millions, if I'm correct. We haven't provided material support militarily to Ukraine or to Russia. And as far as I know, that's true. They haven't joined the Western sanctions campaign. There have been some companies that withdrew operations because they were worried about some of the technology sanctions that might be captured by those. But there's been no formal participation participation in the sanctions regime. And meanwhile, you know, they've continued to trade normally. Russian exports to China have surged, you know, in the double digit percent so the, for the first quarter of this year. Chinese exports to Russia have fallen, but that's more, I think, a reflection of the struggles of the Russian economy rather than any sanctioning activity. On the face of it, you can see why they would say we are neutral. But the problem is that we have a situation where Russia has invaded another country. And so if you are neutral, then that risks being seen as tacit support. So that moves me to the second bucket of categories, which is how government officials have spoken about the conflict as it has progressed. And even from the first days after the invasion late February, the messaging that I understood coming out of Beijing was in really recognizing the legitimacy of some of Russia's and Vladimir Putin's grievances. And as soon as you begin to recognize by saying, yeah, we think Russia has a point here, that becomes, I think, an even stronger than implicit endorsement that the violation of sovereignty, which is what has happened here, is on some level okay, right? If you're not fully against it, mm. then you probably have to be seen as supporting it. Now, this is a very difficult stance for Chinese foreign policy to take because the concept of sovereignty and non-interference is supposedly central to China's vision of international order. And as the war then progressed, 
you saw some mm. movement at the edges away from this. You know, after the Buka massacre, you saw Chinese officials express sorrow and, and dismay that it had happened. There still was a refusal to pin the blame on, on Russia and Russian soldiers. And then the third way I measure this is you look at how online discourse is controlled. You know, Chinese internet is, is heavily censored. There are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of censors who operate and can immediately remove social media posts that are not consistent with what the government, the message the government wants to put out. And so we learn a lot from how they conduct their censorship. And from the first days of the conflict, mostly what you've seen is near total censorship of pro-Ukrainian positions, but the flourishing of pro-Russia positions, which have, at times have been really extreme. Like, for example, the claim that the US was running this bioweapons laboratory in Ukraine, like a full-on conspiracy theory of which there is no evidence. But this kind of conspiracy theory has been given oxygen. It's been allowed to stay up on Chinese social media, whereas anything that kind of is supportive of the of Ukraine or questioning Russia's actions is, is taken down. Now, again, you've seen a bit of progression as the war has gone on. Now, some of the more extreme positions, I understand that are pro-Russia are being censored, are being taken off. At least there are some examples of that. And there's some at the edges, some allowance of posts that question Russia and, and ask how China can best manage this. But by and large, that's still only at the margin. So overall, the answer to your question, I would say, is it's neutral in form, but in practice, you've got implicit support for Russia with a little at the edges as it's become clear how difficult a situation Russia has created for itself. Yeah, that's really interesting and obviously quite different to the stance that, be, that has been taken by most, let's say, Western countries. And indeed, China has been criticised for that sort of more neutral stance that you've outlined where Western leaders and commentators have said that, you know, anything less than complete condemnation is unacceptable. Did China's stance surprise you in any way? And if it didn't, how do you explain it? No, it didn't really surprise me. I mean, China is acting in its own national interest. It's acting in China's best interests. And so it's it's viewing the Ukraine invasion not through a singular lens like morality or international law or the concern about the return of great power conflict and actual war to the European continent. But it's looking instead through a much broader and multifaceted geopolitical lens. It is important, I think, to acknowledge that China, Chinese politics and Chinese foreign policy is not a unitary phenomenon. There almost certainly is not unanimity inside of government and across the elites of Chinese policymaking. It's just that we don't see it explicitly because of how opaque the Chinese system is, that China's interests here are not uniform and, and consistent. They are contradictory. And let me try to enumerate some of them. The first interest, and this is really the central organizing principle of Chinese foreign policy, is competition with the United States and the threat they perceive coming from Washington and its partners, and an associated interest in, in remaking parts of the post-war international order more consistent with Beijing's interests. Now, Russia shares, you know, this scepticism and insecurity coming from the United States. And so you've seen over the past two decades, more and more of a strategic understanding, you might even say somewhat of a partnership between Beijing and Moscow. And so opposing Russia 
in this conflict and criticizing them, condemning them, punish them, punishing them does not help them, by which I mean China, in this core central foreign policy interest where Russia is a fellow traveler. It would you know, only really harm this effort by siding with the United States and therefore it would harm China's interest in this broader competition. That's number one. The second interest is, as I alluded to in my first answer, the need to defend the principle of sovereignty and non-interference, which Beijing claims is central to its worldview um, and, of course, is fundamental in a practical sense on issues like Xinjiang, Hong Kong, and so on. So on some level, they want to try to uphold that principle in, in word and, and deed. The third angle is the domestic politics. 2022 is a very sensitive year for the Chinese Communist Party and President Xi Jinping. At the 20th Party Congress, which will come in probably November of this year, it's widely expected that Xi will secure an unprecedented third term as Chinese leader. And that is breaking many conventions and is sort of really going to cement the idea that he is the unquestioned ruler of China, um, which is a real departure from the way that the CCP has governed China, at least since Deng Xiaoping. And so he has made a partnership with Vladimir Putin and Russia, you know, one of the central planks of his foreign policy platform. And so I think to depart from that would be to admit error, right? And that is not something that he would be willing to do, especially in a sensitive year like this one. And the fourth interest is the more economic interest. Being caught up in the Western sanctions would be uh, bad for China, harming relations with Europe, um, who is a vital economic partner, especially as things with the US get more difficult, is also important. And so they're trying to balance those. So you've got these things don't sit comfortably together. And so my understanding of Beijing's ultimate reaction that I described, professed neutrality, but a refusal to condemn the invasion, thereby endorsing it, is really an attempt to walk that line to balance these contradictory interests. But Russia is a complicated partner, and you know, in some ways, it's a larger version of, of North Korea. And China struggles to control North Korea and is very concerned by what North Korea does from time to time. And so, being close to them brings both benefits and costs to China's national interests. Right? Moscow is very much an agent of chaos. That's their thing. They're a disruptor, and that's good for China when it puts the United States off balance and distracts them, takes up their energy and resources. But it's not good for China when it creates broader systemic instability, um, economic you know, disruption, geopolitical disruption in a year in particular where Beijing just wants calm so it can you know, arrange domestic politics in, a, in the needed way. Yeah, and that's what I find so fascinating about this whole situation. If we think about China as a rising global power, China was quite comfortable sitting back and watching US-led forces getting entangled and bogged down in Iraq, in Afghanistan over the previous decades, and being able to criticise the ineptitude of the way in which US-led forces were struggling within those countries and criticising those incursions of sovereign states in those instances, China had really built this narrative around the stability of regimes that maintain tight political control and that those regimes were more respectful of other states' sovereignty and really managed to consolidate domestic economic gains. So sometimes I just wonder, like, what must the Chinese leadership be thinking as Russia, sort of like this wrecking ball, shows that an authoritarian regime can also 
also be incredibly economically unstable and can certainly violate the sovereignty of a neighbour. Sometimes I feel China's a little bit between a rock and a hard place. Like on the one hand, they cannot align themselves with the West because that's entirely against all the narratives they've developed. But then on the other hand, how would aligning with Russia impact that whole narrative of the economic success and domestic stability of, you know, more authoritarian regimes and how that's a great model for maybe not just the region, but also other states internationally. Yeah, look, leadership is hard. And as China is growing stronger and more powerful, its interests are expanding. But that means, you know, that broader set of interests is going to come into conflict with itself more often. And the US for decades has had to manage difficult trade-offs between political interests, strategic interests, economic interests, moral interests and values and often is criticized for not getting the right balance, right? Like anyone who knows the history of US foreign policy knows there are many stains on it. There are many choices that have been made that look really shocking in hindsight and inconsistent with especially US values. But when you have that much power and there's such broad interest, you have to make trade-offs, right? China has been able, I think, to avoid a lot of these trade-offs as it's been growing quietly, hiding and biding itself and really getting wealthy and powerful. But now that it wants to project its power, it is facing inevitable trade-offs that are uncomfortable, that are going to create new sorts of risks, you know, depending on which decisions it makes, and are obviously going to attract criticism. So leadership is hard. I've said this uh, many times before, and I think the Chinese are discovering that now for the first time. Mm -hmm. I guess one way or another, however the actual conflict ends, Russia is going to come out of this greatly weakened, both politically and economically, and far more isolated than they were prior to the 24th of February this year. Do you think that a weakened Russia will actually play to China's interests and will strengthen China's position in the international order? Or are we likely to see the opposite, that as Russia becomes more weakened, that also in some ways weakens China's position? I would start off by saying I still think it's not clear how much weaker and in what ways Russia will be weaker after this. They certainly are isolated and struggling now, but that might not endure um, indefinitely. So I think the answer that really depends on the causes and consequences of that weakness, if we stipulate that it will happen. If, for example, Russian weakness is accompanied by and indeed caused by a newly energised West led by the United States with much more purpose and clarity about what its interests are, then that's not good for China because that clarity and purpose could then be directed towards policies that would harm China's interests. If, as a result of Russia being weak, Moscow becomes even more uh, disruptive, more chaotic, adopts a more permanently and explicitly hostile posture vis-a-vis the West, then that disruption, especially to the global economy, is also not really in China's interests. So I think I think China would like Ukraine to maintain its sovereignty, but they also want Russia to maintain a degree of stability and capability so that they can remain a partner that, that Beijing can work with as Beijing seeks to remake in the international order. So what do I think will happen? I mean, I think right now China is suffering some reputational damage for its so-called neutrality, but it's important to recognise that that reputational damage is mostly amongst the West, right, the rich world, not the developing world, who are a bit more ambivalent about this invasion. And so I think the centre of political gravity in the West is going to go more towards a sceptical view of China. But I think across the developing world, it's not really going to make a lot of difference because they don't view 
this invasion through this Manichaean mm-hmm. lens of, of Russia bad and Ukraine good. I think Russian weakness is going to be associated with, I think, greater reliance on China economically, which I think will increase China's influence on the margin. I think, you know, the jury is out on how stable the Western coalition for Ukraine, that support is going to be. But I think right now, China is, is is still perceived as sort of backing the loser and the bad guy. But if things change on the ground and a deal is struck, then that support becomes less of a dead weight that's sort of holding down China and, and more opportunities will, will open up. But that remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. As you just mentioned, China's key audience and key focus is not necessarily Western countries right now. We have seen in recent years an increased tension and fracturing, or one could even say deep coupling economically between China and countries such as Australia, we felt it a lot here, but also, of course, the US, Canada, some European countries, etc. So do you see the current conflict in Ukraine as consolidating and accelerating that trend? I've been surprised by the depth of the economic sanctions package, especially those that targeted Russia's central bank. That was a genuine shock. And I think, I mean, maybe Beijing was surprised too, though even if it was, it still simply confirmed a broader perception in China that interdependence with the United States and its partners is a source of strategic vulnerability that can only be mitigated through greater self-sufficiency. And of course, we here in the West also increasingly view interdependence with China as a strategic vulnerability. And that is giving rise, as you said, you know, to the phenomenon of, of decoupling. Now that's happening first and foremost in the domain of technology. Mm-hmm. But I would say that China probably sees the increased threats coming from the West's weapon of global finance, as we've seen in the sanctions in this crisis, as further impetus to, to build its own alternative financial infrastructure. Mm. The problem they face is that that's not easy to do. Like it's one thing to develop self-sufficiency in in certain goods or inputs, but building an alternative financial system and making the renminbi, the Chinese currency, a truly global currency is a tricky thing to do and it has costs so you have to give up control of your capital account basically and there are political reasons and economic reasons why China wants to maintain control of the flows of renminbi in and out of the country so it's a long-term project and I imagine this crisis has given that project additional impetus but it's not necessarily going to happen anytime soon. So I don't see the conflict really changing this dynamic, increasing or decreasing tensions. It's really just confirming this existing trend, playing into this existing trend of decoupling. Mm -hmm. But the hope might have been that that it created issues of, of joint and shared interest between China and the West. And you can imagine maybe like if there was a nuclear weapons issue that genuinely came up, that maybe you might see some cooperation between Washington and Beijing because neither has interest in, in anyone using nuclear weapons in this in this conflict. But other than that, there just aren't shared interests created by the conflict. And so I think decoupling will continue. Mm-hmm. We've also heard a lot of speculation about how will China now consider Taiwan in view of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Do you think that it makes China more or less likely to try to integrate Taiwan back into mainland China in coming years? I don't know because there are really potent forces going in both directions. China fully intends to do so and set itself a deadline in 2049. But the argument that it makes it less likely in the near term is the coherence and the and the unity of the Western response and arguably the difficulties faced by the Russian forces, which are compounded in Taiwan's case because it involves water. So it's just a genuinely hard military operation to undertake. And so both of those 
suggested it would give Beijing extra pause and make them conclude that they're not ready to use force if that's what they want to do to to unify uh, Taiwan with the mainland. But on the other side, they might conclude that time is running out, that Taiwan will use the example of Ukraine to add to add urgency to its efforts to arm and defend itself, that the West is only going to fall in behind that, that effort. And so the balance of power is never going to be more favourable to China than it is in the short term. My guess is that we're not going to see anything in the, in the near term, in the next few years. The military analysts that I pay attention to don't think that China is ready in a, in a material sense to conduct the operation. That would may, lead me to conclude that it kind of is a wash, but it's certainly a dangerous flashpoint. It is certainly the most likely source of a direct military confrontation between the US and China and one that we need to pay a lot of attention to. Mm-hmm. Finally, I have to ask you a question that you will not be able to answer. However, I'm just so curious and I've been wondering about this. So we had this meeting between President Putin and Xi Jinping in early February, just before the start of the Winter Olympics in Beijing, where the two leaders declared a statement of unlimited friendship. Once Russia invaded Ukraine on the 24th of February, some commentators then said, oh, Putin probably told Xi Jinping, he probably knew all about it, he knew there was going to be an invasion, etc. I was thinking, really? Like, surely Xi Jinping, even if he can't abandon his partnership of unlimited friendship with Russia, is not pleased to see a messy, complicated and highly costly invasion taking place. What do you think actually happened in that meeting? Obviously, we can't know for sure. I think the first thing to say is that the joint statement they released, you need to view it separately to what happened with Ukraine afterwards. You know, Putin travelling to Beijing for the Winter Olympics was an incredibly important symbolic gesture. There was pressure um, within the West to boycott the Olympics because of Xinjiang issues. And I mean, I don't think any Western leaders went. The post-COVID dynamic, I mean, at least at the time, there was sort of China trying to present itself to the world as being ready to move on after COVID and run a successful um, international event. And so a face-to-face meeting was a very important symbolic gesture. And that statement really is a statement about the future that those two countries want, about their opposition to the United States and the world order that is being pushed uh, you know, by the, the Biden administration and their presentation of an alternative. You have to think about the audience there as being internal audiences mostly within both countries. But again, as you mentioned earlier, the developing world, the swing states, who can find a lot more attractive given their interest in economic development and stability you know, above above all else. So that's, I think, the long-term import of that statement and the context that brought Putin to meet with Xi face-to-face, I think needs to be somewhat kept separate. Now, then the question was, well, was a military operation foreshadowed? My guess is that Putin didn't foreshadow it explicitly and say this is what's going to happen. But even if he had hinted at it, my guess is that Xi Jinping and the Chinese government would have expected that whatever form a Russian military operation, a special military operation would have taken, it would have been a fairly quick and decisive success. Right, as happened in Crimea in 2014, they would have expected that because we would have expected it too. We did expect it. No one thought that Russia was going to do this badly. No one thought that they would need to grind cities into the dust, that they would commit mass atrocities. And you'd have to assume Putin probably didn't expect this either. So because no one could have predicted what happened, it seems impossible to imagine that Putin was going to lay out this scenario to Xi in the first place, right? And so neither Xi nor Putin would have expected it. And so it's impossible to imagine that she had any real idea what he might have been implicitly endorsing 
through that statement. And rather, he was looking long term at what the significance, both symbolically and practically, of closer Russia-China relations for the global order and for China's core interest of prosecuting uh, competition with the United States. So, no, I, I just I don't think they had any concrete idea because none of us did. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And as we've seen, military operations only tend to become really unpopular once they're unsuccessful. If they're quick, decisive and successful, then far less, you know, domestic populations, but also onlooking states tend to view them critically. Well, thank you so much, Darren. I really appreciate you sharing your insights and your perspective with us on the podcast today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the update from Key Podcast. Thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music. See you next episode.